Let me ask you to direct your attention there, or you can follow in your own Bibles. As has been our custom the last six months, I'll read the passage I'm going to preach from. Then we'll read together as a congregation uh, this passage from Romans chapter 5 that we've been memorizing. And if you haven't got a bookmark yet, take it home. It will help us to memorize Scripture together. If you're able, let's please stand uh, to hear the reading of the Word of God. First of all, from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now let me ask you if you would read together Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you have given us your word and revealed to us your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask, Father, this morning that you would work by your Holy Spirit among your people, that you would work in our hearts and work in our minds, uh, that we would uh, see you more clearly, that we would understand your word, and that ultimately we would be moved to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you this morning, and we ask that everything we say and do would be for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen. Now, this morning, as we look at this passage, I want to draw your attention to an important word. Uh, it's a significant word in verses 13 through 15. It's the word promise. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at that word, and this is the promise to Abraham. I promised you weeks ago, I promised you at the beginning of this book, that when a particular word needed to be highlighted in a significant way, I would tell you to highlight it. So if you are a highlighter in your Bible, this is a word you ought to highlight. It is the first substantive occurrence of this word in the book of Romans, but this will be a word that will come to color or tone the rest of this chapter and when we get to chapter 9, it will be a significant concept for understanding Romans chapter 9. The word promise is an interesting word. It's the Greek word. I'm going to write it right here. Actually, I'll write it underneath of it. It's the Greek word epi-angelia. Epi-angelia. And the reason I tell you that is because it really the understanding of this word, it's a compound word 
when you combine these two words, you get the, 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 the feeling or the concept of what this word actually means. Epi is the word on, the Greek prefix on. Angelios is the word that means to announce, from which we get our English word angel. The angels are the ones who announce the will of God. Epi angelios, the compound word, actually means to announce on, to announce onward, to announce beforehand. It is the word that means something that God says as if it has already been accomplished when as of yet we have yet to see it accomplished, okay? That's essentially what the word means. Something that God says is as good as done when as yet it is in the future for us. This is what the biblical word promise means. And so this morning we're going to talk about the promise to Abraham in verse 13. We're not going to completely cover the subject, as I said, the rest of chapter 4 is about the promise to Abraham. Later in chapter 9, we'll talk about it again. But this morning, rather, we're going to answer three basic and important questions about the promise that God makes to Abraham. First of all, we're going to answer the question, what is the promise? What is the promise? What's the substance of the promise? What's the content? What actually is the promise that God makes to Abraham that Paul refers to in verse 13. Well, as you read verse 13, you'll see Paul describes it in this way, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's the promise that Paul's referring to, that Abraham and his offspring would be heir of the world. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you recall from your reading of the book of Genesis do you recall in the life of Abraham any time where God promised Abraham that he would be heir of the world? You could think about it for a second. Uh, the answer is no. We can't find it anywhere in Genesis. You can read word for word. You'll never find a promise exactly like this. And I imagine if we did, it would stand out in our attention, wouldn't it? We'd be reading through Genesis. We see a bold heading, Abraham, heir of the world. It would be significant. We'd make bumper stickers about that, wouldn't we? We'd plaster them under our bumpers. A significant promise to Abraham, but no such promise is ever made in the book of Genesis. God never says, Abraham, I promise you will be heir of the whole world. So what exactly is happening? Well, I'll tell you what I think is happening, and we can kind of move forward through this passage. There are a number of promises that God does make to Abraham. As a matter of fact, if you read through the book of Genesis, you may have gotten lost in some of the promises. You read one, you move on a few chapters later, and you think, well, didn't, isn't that kind of what God already said? And you talk about the sands of the sea, and now the stars in the sky, and the dust of the earth, and is it the same promise? Is it a different promise? I want to, for a second, just highlight the promises that God makes to Abraham, and then sort of tell you why I believe they're kind of tied together in the New Testament, there are three categories of promises I believe that God makes to Abraham in the Old Testament. First of all, he promises him descendants. He promises him descendants. This would be Genesis 12, verse 2, Genesis 13, 16, Genesis 15, 5, Genesis 17, 4, Genesis 22, 17. Now, if you're sitting here like, whoa, whoa, slow down, I'm trying to get all the references, I you got to slow down. Um, I have got, I'm going to put them on the table afterwards out in the foyer. I've got it all written down for you. Not only the citations, but the text as well. If you want to go back and reference uh, for your own use, you could take one of those with you afterwards. 
All of those passages in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22, 18, all of those chapters are chapters in which the Lord God says to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless you and I will give you many descendants. And you remember, they will number like the stars of the sky, like the grains of sand. Uh, they will number like the dust of the earth. He gives lots of beautiful analogies to help Abraham understand that he's going to have a great heritage of descendants. Second promise that Abraham, God makes to Abraham in Genesis would be the promise that he's going to be a blessing to all peoples. Blessing to all peoples. Uh, this, again, can be found in Genesis 12, verse 3. Genesis 18, verse 17, and Genesis 22, verse 18. You can find it on the handout afterwards if you're interested. Uh, these are promises that God makes to Abraham. He says, I, I will make your heritage, your offspring, to be a blessing to all peoples, to the ends of the earth, right? It's a very grandiose promise. It, it seems to have almost a, uh, an unrealistic expectation, a miraculous expectation, that he be a blessing to all peoples. The third promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis is maybe the one you're most familiar with. It's the promise of land, whether that be the promise of the land of Canaan, of Palestine, of the various ways that God demarks that to Abraham in the book of Genesis. That can be found in Genesis 13, verse 14, Genesis 15, verse 18, and Genesis 17, verse 8. Again, you can find it on the paper that I'll put out there afterwards. Now, there's two important things that happen with the land, I think, in Genesis. First of all, when God makes the promise twice as he's speaking about land, he uses these words. He says, I promise you this land as an everlasting possession. Okay, an everlasting possession. So I always tell people, whatever conclusion you make about the promises to Abraham concerning the land, whatever you think that, that represents, you have to take into account the everlastingness of it, okay? So for anyone who's ever said, well, I, I see the fulfillment of this in Solomon, right? Look at that, David and then Solomon and the land was theirs. Look how amazing that is. That doesn't take into account the everlasting nature of the promise, does it? Maybe for 50 years during the reign of Solomon, the land was theirs, okay? 50 years is not the same as everlasting, I, just, I know you know that. I'm going to point it out anyway. So the promise is for an everlasting possession. The second thing that we see happening throughout the entirety of Scripture is that this promise, I believe, becomes broadened to incorporate the whole earth. What you will find, I've written it on that handout. Take a look afterwards. You will find that we move forward from Genesis and we begin to look in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel makes a promise. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah predicts this. He prophesies it. Right? We begin to see the promise of the offspring of Abraham is not only a possession of a land, but a possession of the whole earth. Okay? And this probably begins to ring a bell because you get to the New Testament and you begin to hear conversations about the whole earth. For instance, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And you're kind of like, well, where did that come from? What does Jesus mean that they will inherit the earth? Or you fast forward to the book of Revelation, which we just worked through a year ago, okay? In the book of Revelation, you see the, the beautiful prophetic imagery of what is going to happen to the church, and we find that at the end, there is this a, a new heaven and new earth. 
The kingdoms come and they bow at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives them as a possession to his, his kin, right? His brothers and sisters, those who become co-heirs in the kingdom. So this imagery develops from Genesis, it becomes a promise to inherit the whole earth, okay? This, I believe, let me tell you, this is, I believe, what Paul's referring to in verse 13 when he says the promise to Abraham and his offspring to be heirs of the whole earth. I believe that Paul is summarizing the promises to Abraham, and he is now saying, I will wrap it all together by essentially saying God promised Abraham that him and his offspring would be heirs of the entire earth, right? The summative, evaluative expression of everything that God promises to Abraham can be stated that they would indeed be heirs of the whole earth. Listen to how John Murray said it. He said, it is defined as the promise to Abraham that he should be heir of the world, but it is also a promise to his seed and therefore can hardly involve anything less than the worldwide dominion promised to Christ and the spiritual seed of Abraham in him. It is a promise that receives its ultimate fulfillment in the consummated order of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so you see what Murray is saying, essentially what I've just laid out before you, the promises to Abraham ultimately find their fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. That is to say, spiritual descendants, blessings to all people, an everlasting possession of land or the whole earth finds its ultimate consummation in Jesus Christ in his second return, at which time a new heavens and new earth are granted to the people of God. Okay? So this is the substance of what Paul speaks about when he says the promise to be heirs of the world. Now here's the second question, maybe more significant in this conversation. Who is being promised? Okay? Who are the recipients of the promise? I imagine as you look at the passage, you probably realize that there's an easy way to answer that question and a hard way to answer that question. There are two different groups of people who are mentioned here. First of all, Abraham. It says the promise to Abraham in verse 13, and that's really easy to understand. It's not as if there's a lot of Abrahams in the Old Testament with like first names and last names. There's not Joe Abraham or Abraham Smith. There is one Abraham, okay? And, uh, and we know who he is, so we know in one sense who this promise is to. It is promised to Abraham, who's the character in Genesis who God comes and intercedes in his life, uh, makes him to be the father of many peoples, promises him glorious promises, and then from him works out a beautiful plan of redeeming a people, okay? So we're speaking of that Abraham. For as easy as it is to understand who that is, it is equally as complicated to understand who are the offspring of Abraham. Right, that's a complicated question, isn't it? Uh, depending on your church background, you may have various ways of answering that question. Let me tell you, uh, as we think about this, y y the Greek and the Hebrew don't make it any easier, right? The first inclination, whenever something is complicated, well, let's go look at the original language, okay? So the, the Hebrew is the word zema, the Greek is the word sperma, they both mean the same thing, they mean the seed. 
So essentially the passage says this promise is for Abraham and his seed. And as I said, that's less ambiguous or more ambiguous than even the English is, okay? And so we have the question, who are the offspring of Abraham? Let me begin by giving the easy answer. And then we'll talk about why the easy answer isn't the right answer, but we'll talk about the easy answer first, okay? The easy answer to this question would be that the offspring of Abraham are his actual children, right? That's kind of where your mind goes first, doesn't it? That the offspring of Abraham are his physical children and his children's children and their children's children and and so on and so forth. It would be the, the blood relatives of Abraham. If you're thinking about a way to sort of quantify this, Okay, we think about Abraham, and Abraham has a physical lineage, a physical line of descendants, and if we're to kind of group them in a circle and say who they are, the Apostle Paul describes them as the Jews. Sometimes he uses the word Israel, but these are the words that he often uses to describe the physical descendants of Abraham. Now, if you're thinking about this, this is one of the many reasons why it was so important in Judaism to be able to trace your lineage back to a tribe of Israel. Because think about this. It's not really about the tribes of Israel. I mean, it is, but it isn't. If you can trace your lineage back to a tribe of Israel, that means you're a descendant of Isaac. Isaac had sons. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you could trace your lineage back to a tribe of Israel, you could trace your lineage back to Isaac. And if you could trace your lineage back to Isaac, you could trace your lineage back to Abraham. Isn't that cool how that works? Essentially, by doing so, you are able to say, not only am I a physical descendant of Abraham, but I'm an heir to the promise. The promise is the most important thing, actually. Of the, the blood of Abraham, I'm not sure how significant that is, but because it connects us to Abraham and the promises given to Abraham and his offspring, there's a significance to be able to connect your lineage through Abraham. That's the simplest explanation. Let me tell you where that runs into some problems and then talk about what I think Paul is doing. When we get to chapter 9, chapter 9 of Romans, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the Jews and he's speaking about Israel. And in chapter 9, he speaks about them and then he gets to verse 6 and he says this, okay, concerning the Jews in Israel, it's not as if the word of God has failed. You remember that? Chapter 9, verse 6, okay? It's not as if the Word of God has failed, and you should rightly ask the question, well, why why would we think the Word of God has failed? What would incline anyone to think that the Word and the promises of God have failed? Why would we ever think that? Well, let me give you a scenario. It's a, a, a realistic scenario, okay? God makes promises to Abraham and his offspring, All the promises that we just talked about, beautiful, wonderful, amazing, miraculous promises. And he says, I will do this, Abraham and your offspring. And then time passes, right? Lots of time passes. Hundreds of years become thousands of years. Thousands of years go on, both during the time of the Apostle Paul and during our day, people where the physical descendants of Abraham might ask the question, what happened to the promises of God? I mean, God promised us a land, but we have no land. God promised we would be a blessing to all people, but it feels as if the exact opposite is true. We're kind of like the antagonist of all people. 
We're the bothering of all people. We're rejected by all people. He promised many descendants over the face of the earth. But where's the fulfillment of that promise? The eternal possession. You might see how people would begin to ask the question, have the promises and word of God failed? As a matter of fact, it feels like the very opposite is true, right? We have less than we had back then. I mean, at least Abraham had a homeland. And so the question remains, has the word of God failed? And when Paul makes that statement, it's not as if the word of God has failed. You should then ask this question, well, Paul, if the word of God hasn't failed, what gives? I mean, what are we to do with this? How can those two ideas be reconciled? And then Paul goes on in chapter 9, verse 8, two verses later, and he explains by saying this. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Chapter 9, verse 8. It's not the children of the flesh who are counted as children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see what the Apostle Paul has been doing and he will continue doing. He has highlighted a subset of the children of Israel and he says these are the children of promise. And previously we talked about these people. We talked about the Abrahams and we talked about the Moses and the, and the Davids. And we talked about the people who are not only of the, the physical lineage of Abraham, but they are children of promise. That is, they were joined by faith and they became children of faith, united with Abraham, children of God, recipients of the promise. So he begins talking about a subset. But listen, there's something even more significant. Pay attention to this. This is what he does in Galatians. Paul in Galatians 3 will say, no, no, there's, there's more to this. Okay? And this is what he says in Galatians 3. The promise was to Abraham and his offspring. And, and Paul says, it doesn't say that it was to offsprings, plural. It says it is to an offspring, singular. The apostle Paul says in Galatians 3 that the promise to Abraham, this promise to Abraham and his offspring was actually to one offspring. That was Jesus Christ. So here I put Jesus. Because he's of the physio, physical lineage of Abraham. He was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Judah. He came as a Jew. He is a child of promise. But as a matter of fact, Galatians tells us he is the only child of promise. He's the only offspring of Abraham. He is the only one that God was speaking about when God made promises to Abraham. So a land and a possession and a blessing to all peoples and an eternal inheritance and the possession of the whole world. This is the promise through Abraham for the Son, Jesus Christ. But, Paul says in Galatians 3, this will help you to understand how all this is coming together. Why? Because when we begin to include the Gentiles, here's the Gentiles. Okay? Look at that. I've just made a Venn diagram. The Gentiles, the question through Romans is, how, well, how are the Gentiles being saved? I mean, there's Gentiles in the Old Testament who were saved. You think of Rahab, uh, you can think of Ruth, okay? How are the Gentiles being saved? How are they brought in? How do they become children of promise? Because this, this was a promise to Abraham. Paul says in Galatians 3, it's through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the recipient of the promise, the only heir of possession through Abraham, the perfect child of God, blameless in all his ways, obedient, 
obedient in all that he does according to the law, according to the Father, carries out the plan perfectly. He is the heir of the promise to Abraham. And now, through union with him, both Jew and Gentile become children of promise. The apostle Paul says, it's not as if the word of God has failed, because the word of God, according to the promises given to Abraham, is directed at the children of promise through Jesus Christ. This is essentially what Paul is working out as he is continuing through this argument concerning the promises of God that are received by faith. Now, here's the last thing. Ultimately, if you talk about, whoa, what is Paul really doing here? He really is trying to emphasize this. How is the promise received? He's going to emphasize again and again, and he does it here again today. It is received by faith. And I was thinking this morning, we've been talking so much about uh, the recipients of promise and how this is received by faith, not by works, and you've heard it over and over again, and, and how often is enough to say that, and I think we can't say it enough, so I'm going to keep saying it. The promise is received by faith. It is not gained by works of the law, nor any works. Sacramental works, works of obedience, good works to your neighbor, the promise of God are not received through works. Here the Apostle Paul says it is not through works of the law. He emphasizes the impact of the law in verses 14 through 15. And I wanted to do this this morning. I want to just give you a little picture. Here's, I want to end with this, okay? As we think about the promises being received by faith, not through works of the law. Here's a, a picture I think, I hope, if you're like me, pictures will stand out in your mind. And you will say, oh, I remember that time when Pastor Byron told that story. It reminded me perfectly that we receive the promise by faith, not by works. Okay, so here it is. I would imagine that most of you have seen the Disney movie Frozen, okay? Most of you, have, shake your head if you've seen it. Okay, I just don't want to make sure, I want to make sure it's not falling on deaf ears, okay? So the movie Frozen, I remember watching the movie the first time and I thought, um, like I think in most Disney movies, what makes the movie for me is not really the main characters, or even the storyline, it's the other character who's like the funny side character uh, they make the story. That would be in The Lion King, um, Timon and Pumbaa. And so in Frozen, it was Olaf, the snowman, right? He's just a terribly interesting character, provides the comedic relief, really makes the story, ties it together. So when I watched the movie, the, the song that stood out to me above all songs was the song that Olaf sung about the summer. Do you remember that song? Um, for all of you uh, little girls who love Elsa and Anna, no offense to them, but for me, that was the most significant song in the whole movie. Okay? Now, here's how that song begins. If you remember it, it's just thick with irony. This magical snowman singing the song, here's how it begins. Bees a-buzzin', kissable dandelion fuzz, and all I'll be doing whatever snow does in summer. A drink in my hand, my snow up against the burning sand, probably getting gorgeously tanned in summer. The rest of the song is exactly like that. If you haven't heard it, you've got to go listen to it, okay? Now, here's the, the interesting thing. This, this is where I think the analogy is very helpful, okay? Uh, Olaf is not wrong about the beautiful things about the sun, is he? Right? In an existential, objective reality, simply making statements about the sun and the summer, he is very accurate. The summer is warm, and it's great, and it's beautiful, and, and it's just delightful, Okay? 
He's not wrong at all. You see where the problem lies, right? The problem is that the summer sun, though it be good, is not good for him in the way that he thinks it is, okay? As a matter of fact, I do believe there's a scene, maybe in the second movie, where Olaf melts in the sun. Maybe I made that up in my mind. I don't know if that's true or not. Okay, so here's here's the crossover. Here's what Paul's been saying about the law all along. It's not as if the law is bad. So don't fall into the error of saying, oh, that law, so glad that the law's gone. The law's not bad at all. As a matter of fact, the law's good. It is given by God. It tells us about holiness and righteousness. It directs us towards God and how to please him. The law is beautiful and good, but the reality that Paul's pointing us to is this. The law is not good for what you think it is. If you try to live according to the law, if you seek life in the law, if you believe you'll be justified by the law, it will destroy you. It's just not made to function the way that you think it is, okay? And so Olaf serves as this cautionary tale about good things not being used the way that we think they should, okay? This is what Paul means in verses 14 and 15. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see, Paul is saying if it is the case that the promise is to be based on obedience to the law, then there will be no heirs. No one receives the promise, for no one can live according to to the law and the righteous demands of God. And therefore, he says in verse 14, your faith, if that is the case, your faith is exercised in vain and the promise will not be fulfilled. Two Greek words he uses there, they speak of the the intensity of the emptiness. Your faith will be empty. It will be nothing. It will be meaningless. It will have no effect and the promise will also be empty. There's nothing if we're heirs according to obedience to the law. And he adds, why is that the case? Because the law brings us more and more under condemnation. Not because of any deficiency in the law, not because the law's imperfect, not because the law has failed, but because of the deficiency in us. Because of the brokenness in us. The law is unfamiliar with grace. The law knows no mercy. The law cannot be bent to be compassionate. The law doesn't move towards us. The law does not want to serve us in our disobedience. The law exposes us as rebels and failures and enemies of God, and ultimately the law produces wrath. So Paul means in verse 15. You see, that is very different than the promises of God. The promises of God are a free gift, aren't they? Isn't that the nature of a promise? It's not a promise if you say to someone, you do this and I'll do that. You bring this and I'll bring that. If you do this, then I will do that. That's not a promise. A promise is a statement of fact, as if it is true, and has already come to pass, when as yet we have not received it. The promises of God are a gift. 
And as Abraham did nothing to deserve them, so we can do nothing to earn them. You see, this then makes the Apostle Paul to be true in all that he says, especially when he says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is the gift of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. And we pray, Lord God, that here this morning you would be glorified and lifted up. We pray, Lord God, that you would show us our need for you. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would remove any inclination we have to be justified by obedience, and you would cause us to see our great need, that we would come to you in faith, and we pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen that faith, grow our faith in you, and then move us as we grow in grace, and the understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ, move us to walk in obedience not to gain any acceptance, not to gain any good standing with you, but out of the thanksgiving of our hearts. For he who has been forgiven much loves much. And so we thank you and glorify you this morning. Our Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.